Blog Talk Radio. Well, good evening on this wonderful weekend, Eric. Have you been outside all day? Actually, yes. I have been uh, um, weeding my garden. Um, it, it got so dang hot, like everything's growing again. So I had to go through and, uh, you know, uh, chop stuff down. Eric, you're very earthy with your garden. <laughs> I am actually, I, I'm, I'm earthy, but I'm also lazy because I have this, uh, I, if it was up to me, I would actually just put like sand, um, everywhere that grass is, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the city ordinances complain about that kind of stuff. So. Well, we so do we can. don't want to we do not want to upset the precious and fragile town of Brunswick because we know that uh sometimes they can be a little oversensitive to things that you say or that we say as a whole as a minor detail. Yes, yes, you know, and uh, I tell you what, Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I I the my most my favorite part about this entire weekend has been that it's like 60 70 degrees outside and just like yeah. 2 months ago a city council member in Brunswick was worried that there would be snow on the ground at the beginning of May for the great bar, uh, Brunswick barbecue throwdown. So I'm really <laughs> appreciating the irony here. I mean, I was, I was wearing shorts and a tank top while I was working. Okay. And I was sweating. So like, I don't think, uh, I don't think cold is going to be a problem for that event. <laughs> well, with that, I want to welcome everyone to another episode of a minor detail. Um, you are listening to us on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail. My name is Ryan Miner. You're with my co-host and co-editor of a minor detail.com, Eric Beasley, the famous Eric Beasley from Brunswick. And tonight we have a special guest who will be joining us in just a moment, Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies, and he is known for writing on the American legal system. And tonight we're going to talk to him about some national issues. This show usually focuses on mostly state issues, local issues. Eric and I tackle um, the unmoored territory of Western Maryland mostly and some Montgomery County craziness, and we, we try to mix it up a little bit. But Eric, tonight we're going to be talking with Walter about some national issues about Judge Gorsuch, and we're going to be talking about the first month of the Trump presidency, doctor assisted uh, – I wrote suicide, but I, I think the vernacular there could be subject to change. But we now have with us this evening the Cato Institute's – the famous Cato Institute scholar, Walter Olson. Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be on. Walter. Um, How, how's our for, connection? For, for, Does it sound good? Oh, you sound great. Okay. You always sound great. <laughs> Walter, um, for those who don't know the Cato Institute, um, and I think this is a pretty fair question um, because, you know, here at A Minor Detail, we're not part of the crooked media, so we're going to be fair. Um, what, what does the Cato Institute do, Walter? It is the think tank identified with libertarian ideas, and um, it's been around since the late 70s, I believe, and uh, it is – a large and, so to speak, general purpose think tank. It's got a, a lot of work going on on defense and foreign policy, on uh, domestic policy areas like health and education. Uh, my own area is law and the courts, um, and uh, lots of other activities, uh, regular events in Washington, 
Uh, indeed, it's a good idea to get on the mailing list uh, if you're in this uh, listener area because a lot of the events are well worth going down to Washington for. And uh, <clears throat> podcasts, you name it, lots of, uh, uh, lots of different ways to uh, listen to what the Cato people are up to. Well, um, you are a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies, and as you mentioned, you talk about our American legal system. And to piggyback off of what you just said, I've been to many Cato Institute um, forums um, at the Hayek Lecture Hall. In fact, I've, I've seen you at the, the lecture hall several times, and um, I, it's, it's my favorite. I, I, I strongly dislike taking our metro system into Washington, D.C., but – but when I do, Walter, I, I, I go into the uh, – from Shady Grove, from where I live in North Potomac, to um, Metro Center, and then I take an Uber over um, to 1000 Massachusetts Avenue. And, Walter, I think you and I first met we, – we knew of each other, but we first met um, – there was an, a Cato event in the basement in one of the lecture halls, and it was on – sort of the revolutionary concept of um, gay marriage, and they had a big forum about it, and so the, the libertarian perspective to that. And it was just fascinating, and we had several panelists, and that's where you and I first got acquainted. But I'm not sure where you first met Eric Beasley. He's all over the place in Frederick County. Yeah, I don't remember either, but it's been uh, it's been quite a while. And it's... Um, uh, it's an institute that, um, as you say, is um, on a lot of current topics, and it's also um, deliberately um, it reaches out to a uh, uh, variety of points of view. And uh, I will pitch uh, the upcoming event that I'm hosting um, March 2nd, which is a Thursday afternoon. Uh, Jonathan Adler, uh, known to a lot of libertarian readers and conservative readers from uh, as a regular contributor to the rollout conspiracy, the law blog uh, associated with the Washington Post. But he is, he's got a new book out on uh, business in the Supreme Court, and that happens to be really in the news because uh, of the, and we'll talk about the Neil Gorsuch nomination, but of the various themes that uh, dem uh, Democrats are trying to develop against Gorsuch. One of them, as usual, is the idea, oh, well, the Supreme Court is, is too pro-business, and, and this will just perpetuate that. So um, we have, as commenter on that, Andrew Pincus, who is a former Democratic official, um, who will um, you know, offer his own perspective. But it's um, <clears throat> this is, I guess, uh, touching on another point you made about the uh, the national scene and the new administration. This is a news-rich environment for those of us in the policy business. <laughs> I have, I, really, I don't remember any time that has produced as many uh, stories we had to react to, uh, both on legal issues specifically and and just in general. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so yeah. Walter, speaking of the whole uh, the Neil Gorsuch thing. Okay. So, I'm not a I'm not a legal scholar, obviously, and I'm I'm sure that we have non-lawyers that are listening. So. Could you just kind of break down a little bit, tell us a little bit about Neil Gorsuch and uh, maybe a little bit about why people are frothing at the mouth in opposition to him? Well, on that last point, it, to me it was all symbolized when um, 
the um, president made the announcement, and within an hour or two, there was a demonstration um, uh, in which they were waving signs saying stop. Uh, and then there was a blank that had to be filled in, and the stop was professionally <laughs> printed, but the Gorsuch was done rather hastily in magic marker. Uh, so, you know, it, it, could, it could have been stop Kefalage or stop uh, Hardiman. Uh, uh, there was just a blank there. And that Unfortunately, um, and this is not exclusively a matter of, of, of the Democrats, because we all know that uh, when Obama uh, made his nominations, uh, you know, a lot of conservatives reacted exactly the same way to Ilana Kagan as to Sonia Sotomayor, even though they were quite, two quite different uh, nominees. Uh, and likewise, Gorsuch, uh, and, and we'll get to this in a minute, is not exactly the same as all of the other judges that uh, the president might have picked, but 75% of the opposition, and in the case of Gorsuch, because I, I think his credentials are so incredibly sterling, you know, more like 90%, yeah. are people who would have objected uh, basically no matter who uh, had been picked. Uh, you know, maybe not if he had picked Merrick Garland, but uh, you know, among the uh, 30 or so names on his, uh, his own list, uh, that just would have happened. Now, on those differences, uh, Garland, oh, um, did I say Garland? What a Freudian slip. Um, Gorsuch <laughs> is, um, you know, like Garland on the Democratic side, um, is kind of a judge's judge and a, um, uh, you know, he, he is respected um, uh, especially by those who have practiced at uh, the highest levels of the Supreme Court. He is um, there's a complaint about the Supreme Court that there are all these people with perfect re resumes that uh, they all went to Harvard or uh, Yale or, in this case, uh, uh, Columbia for at least part of his education. But the, um, that's the way elite legal practice is, is that they tend to get funneled uh, through um, the same clerkship system and the same couple of prestigious law schools. And Gorsuch is a product of that who... Um, uh, uh, has been uh, vociferously praised by some kind of unlikely characters uh, who got to know him uh, during those various phases. I stumbled across an article in the Harvard Gazette uh, in which they sent out a reporter to ask former Harvard colleagues, what do you think of Neil Gorsuch? Now, <clears throat> I thought I knew what was going to be in that article because, for example, when Clarence Thomas was nominated, uh, Yale Law School showed the kind of anti-alumni spirit that uh, you know you would expect from some sort of Darth Vader University that can't stand its own alumni. I mean, the, you know, yeah, 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 Yale faculty began coming out saying, "Oh yeah, you know, he he went here. He is a product of Yale Law School. We must stop him." Uh, you know, the, uh, let, you know, let me share this personal experience of of some something that he did vaguely wrong uh, 15 years ago. And uh, you know, I hung my head. I thought, you know, obviously. Uh, the simple politeness that universities used to feel of, you know, say nothing if you can say nothing good about your former alumni, you know, totally broke down, not only with Clarence Thomas, it also broke down on Samuel Alito, um, who attracted, quote, the Alito Project, unquote, at Yale Law School, even though he went there, uh, you know, the, this whole project to stop him. So, so I, expecting the worst as far as any sort of 
uh, courtesy toward graduates that might still be left as a little, you know, smoking ruin at the bottom of these institutions. I, I opened up this Harvard Gazette article and um, uh, almost fell over because every single person was favorable. Uh, Larry Tribe, uh, you know, de- <laughs> had had beagle of. Um, uh, you know, liberal legal, legal practice. Um, he was saying these gracious, wonderful things about how good uh, Gorsuch was and how skilled and how intelligent. Uh, and on down the line, through, um, not only the um, – uh, it doesn't take long to do the requisite uh, interviews at Harvard Law School if you're trying to interview all the Republican professors. So they had Charles Freed and, and one or two others. But, um, but the ones who I knew perfectly well were Democrats. And, you know, if they got on the Supreme Court, it would be because a Democratic president had, had nominated them. Um, were just overflowing with praise about um, uh, Gorsuch's record. So that's point one: is that uh, he is a um, he's got that kind of respect among uh, the um, uh, toughest um, critics, uh, in, you know, in, at the high end of the, uh, the the profession. That having been said, what kind of conservative is he? Because you know it, we take for granted, and and, that, and it's correct. He's, he is a conservative. Um, the shorthand that people use, which is really pretty accurate, is that he's uh, very Scalia-like. He is um, uh, more than uh, almost any justices that come along. He is concerned with uh, writing um, stylishly and very clearly and. Scalia could make himself clear in, in a way that excelled every other justice, and, and Gorsuch will be in a similar kind of category. Um, and in both cases, it comes from the idea that they're not just writing for the professional uh, legal uh, mandarins. They are writing for people who may not be lawyers and want to understand uh, what's going on? You know, why did the courts hijack this area that we used to have democratic <laughs> uh, voting over? Uh, and so they, in both cases, they um, are uh, easier than than uh, most other judges to dip into if you are uh, not used to uh, uh, conventional uh, judicial opinion style. So there's that. And uh, if you ask what he has, uh, what topics he is specialized in, uh, it's always uh, somewhat luck of the draw uh, with these uh, appellate positions because uh, he isn't in control of what cases get bowled down the land for him to uh, have have to respond to. Uh, In this case, he was uh, on the Hobby Lobby case, a very famous um, uh, religious accommodation case. Most conservative judges uh, would have come out exactly the same way. Uh, on the Hobby Lobby case. If you ask what he wrote about back when he was a private citizen and had a choice of what to write about, uh, it's kind of been an interesting topic and one that ties in with uh, what you said was going to be mentioned on the show. Uh, namely, he did a whole book uh, critical of uh, doctor-assisted suicide. Uh, uh, there, it, it, there was a very um, early wave of... Um, uh, interest in the courts about um, uh, a decision that had um, uh, seemingly created a constitutional right to doctor-assisted suicide, and that was reversed by the Supreme Court uh, in a case called Glucksburg. But it had led some years ago to uh, a lot of uh, debate. Uh, wait a minute, you know, is there something in the Constitution that you can um, read as uh, um, 
establishing the, this sort of individual right. And uh, and Gorsuch says no, uh, there is not such a thing in the Constitution. Uh, uh, it would uh, uh, the, you know, the, the relevant clauses don't stretch that far. It was uh, uh, an, an originalist view finds that uh, you know it was not uh, understood to cover uh, those sorts of liberties. And and that uh, so that is one straw in the wind as far as. Um, uh, you know, he is not going to be um, uh, that kind of uh, relatively liberal and open co- uh, constitutionalist. It's not clear that any of the Republicans on the court would be tempted at all by that. I don't think that um, right. Anthony Kennedy, who is the typical swing vote, um, uh, has any interest in doing that either. Kennedy uh, has another connection, of course, with Gorsuch in that Gorsuch clerked for him. And uh, he had a... Um, uh, kind of a double header in which he clerked for the retiring Byron White and then uh, for uh, and Anthony Kennedy. And um, I don't think that we can necessarily tell all that much about his jurisprudence. Uh, clearly, the issue interests him. Um, in general, his view is pretty much the same as uh, at least 80 or 90 percent of the judges that uh, Trump would have picked. You might be able to find one or two um uh, with a specifically libertarian streak, uh, who would um, not have gone there, but um, it, it's pretty standard uh, conservatism, and certainly it's the way that Scalia would have come out. I mean, we know perfectly well how Scalia felt about that. Walter, let's start with the the process leading up to Gorsuch's nomination, beginning last year. Some Democrats argue that this Supreme Court seat is a stolen seat. And I would argue that that's a bit of fallacious reasoning in that any Supreme Court seat, of course, is the American people's seat. And it doesn't belong to anyone other than um, someone who is going to interpret the Constitution um, what I should, and what I believe is an a originalist approach. However, um, in Barack Obama's last years um, of his presidency, um, when Justice Scalia passed away, um, he nominated uh, the uh, Merrick Garland, who is, I guess, still the um, – he is the chief justice of the D.C. Court of Appeals, a very popular court, um, has um, been in the news. Um, we know it well. You know it well, being that we live in the metro D.C. area. And Gorsuch um, is essentially going to be – taking the seat that Merrick Garland would have had had the Senate decided to at least entertain the possibility of meeting with him. And it's interesting. um, That didn't happen. And the Republicans, who at the time and still are in control of the United States Senate, said that the president, the next president, not Barack Obama, should nominate the next justice, associate justice to fill the late yeah. Antonin Scalia's position. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, of course, the idea that it's a stolen seat or, and that uh, it will be uh, an illegitimate occupant uh, is just uh, political rhetoric and silly and, and to be dismissed. It's um, uh, To go back to the original situation of uh, refusing to consider or uh, let alone confirm a nominee uh, during an election year, um, that is political hardball. Uh, it is not unconstitutional. The Supreme Court is under no obligation whatsoever to mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, hold votes or um, 
confirm nominees or, or, or give them a vote at all. It, that's not how the advice and consent power works. It is a power rather than an obligation. Um, and we could spend the entire rest of the show um, watching the um, tennis-like batting of the hypocrisy ball back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans on judicial nominations. As you know, uh, with each switch of control of either the presidency or the Senate, uh, everyone runs around like at a good uh, at halftime at some types of sports games and, and you know takes their opponents' old positions. Um, and uh, it has been that way uh, on questions of the filibuster, on questions of uh, uh, whether the president should generally get their pick. Uh, um, and uh, it has certainly been that way on judicial nominations. Now, the Republicans made a calculated um, play of hardball. Uh, they were um, pressing the uh, thing a little bit further than uh, had been done on Supreme Court issues, and they took the risk a very real risk that the public will react negatively, saying, no, it's it's more important to have the ninth seat filled so the court can have a little more confidence than it is to um, wait for the results of the new election and possibly uh, get a different outcome if the country decides that it didn't want a democratically chosen uh, judge. The voters, in so far as I can see, completely vindicated uh, Mitch McConnell's gamble on that. The, uh, the, the, there were a lot of attempts to... Uh, beat particular Republicans like Chuck Grassley in Iowa, uh, who had been instrumental in carrying out the strategy, and they fell completely flat. So, uh, leaving that aside, the um, where um, it, that doesn't resolve the question of uh, to, uh, to what extent we should admire um, uh, the various actors in this and. Uh, my own position is that the hardball has gotten considerably too hard. Um, uh, it happens that Merrick Garland was a very widely liked, respected guy who was considered uh, uh, extremely competent and more than just that, uh, kind of about as um, centrist as any judge you would expect uh, uh, Obama to pick, and also old, and we know what that means, which is that Obama was deliberately not trying to take a huge piece of cake uh, by appointing someone super young who would be there for decades, but was uh, it, it, this was more in the nature of, of, of a compromise. All that having been said, um, this is a political process. Uh, uh, you know, it did not lose its virginity last year with uh, Mitch McConnell. It's, <laughs> It, it lost, mm -hmm. lost today a long time ago, and um, you know I would uh, I hope that we can start a cycle in which each round is somewhat more um, uh, uh, rational and polite than the last, rather than less rational and polite than the, <laughs> uh, the last. Um, and you know Republicans said a couple of things um, that. I certainly flagged as being very unwise. One of the things that several Republican senators said is, um, well, if Hillary gets in, we'll block the seat for four more years. And I yeah. proceeded to the nearest brick wall and just began banging my head. <laughs> this can't possibly make sense to block Hillary's nominee for four years. And several Republican senators said that. And that was dumb. Um, and it, that can properly be thrown back at them because this is basically the question the Democrats face with Gorsuch. It's, um, uh, are they really planning to hold the seat vacant for four years? Who do they think Trump is going to appoint if not Gorsuch? And that gets us to um, the question of not only is he likely to appoint someone who doesn't have uh, quite as sterling a, a 
um, reputation uh, for uh, his extreme ability. But uh, you know, the history of presidential appointments um, has a, a fairly substantial number of people. We've been lucky lately, but um, if you go back to Harry Truman and so forth, you find a kind of political cronies getting appointed. And yeah. um, we, uh, considering the fears that people had about Trump, uh, and you know, we'll get, we can get to Trump later, but considering all the, the negative things that were said about him, um, it should have come as an enormous relief that uh, he did not pick someone who um, he had some sort of past relationship with who would kind of wink or smile, you know, if, if the president's interests came before the Supreme Court. No reason whatsoever to think that Gorsuch um, feels that he owes the president anything that he... Um, uh, and indeed, the, you know, part, part of the interesting background of his jurisprudence is that he is more skeptical of the government's interest than the typical conservative on yes. uh, Trump's list. Um, he... Um, uh, you know, a series of different things on search and seizure, for example, on the Fourth Amendment, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on a um, uh, one of the, everyone's favorite cases is the uh, New Mexico burping in school case. I don't know if you've run across that <laughs> one yet. Of course, but, yeah. Um, yeah, here, here is one where, uh, you know, some justices would have said, oh, well, you've got to maintain the... Um, uh, respect due to the police and the uh, the school, and so uh, you know, don't don't allow the police to be sued for getting out of control here, and and say that the person should have been behaving. Uh, not Gorsuch. Gorsuch said, um, you know, the um, authority must not abuse its power. Uh, you know, even when you've got a uh, misbehaving teenager who's not really a threat to anyone, uh, authority is there to comply with the law and and the law extends to all alike including the police and the principal and uh and that is generally uh a hallmark of his uh uh jurisprudence he doesn't roll over the for the, what the police want he doesn't roll over for what right. uh government agencies want um and we should be saying hallelujahs frankly uh that <laughs> in an age in which uh we may need the supreme court very soon to <laughs> To, to check, uh, you know, so, uh, some outrageous possibilities of executive power um, that uh, Gorsuch may be uh, well above average of the justices on the court in, in doing that. Well, I agree. And part of Gorsuch's record that I deeply admire is his um, strong um, adherence to some of these procedural safeguards um, that protect um, a a criminal defendant, someone who is charged under criminal law, and and they they have these, uh, you know, specific enumerated safeguards listed inside of, of the Constitution as it evolved over time. You know, uh, that we give people that in in America we have this thing called this great thing called due process of law, and uh, Judge Gorsuch um, values that system and protecting. Um, a criminal defendant's rights, and you mentioned that as well as asset seizure. That's another big issue. Um, but you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the some of the key stances that will probably come up during Gorsuch's confirmation hearing. And one of those issues, uh, Walter, is I think some of the the, the more left wing folks they're they're going to be distressed about Gorsuch's attitude towards. Um, some controversial areas of the law, judicial deference to agency 
agency decisions. And so <laughs> under the current doctrine of the Chevron defense, the courts defer to the executive agency's interpretation of, uh, let's say, an ambiguous federal statute so long as the interpretation is reasonable. So, um, you know, the principle here is that is accountability and that executive agencies are part of the political branch. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Scalia once endorsed the Chevron defense, um, but conservatives have come to attack the defense and doctrine in recent years. Do you think that um, – you know, I think Gorsuch is in agreement with that stance, and you know, in a recent opinion, um, he all but called for the Supreme Court to overturn, overturn Chevron and let judge, judges decide for themselves whether agency <laughs> interpretation – yeah. He has been a leader in how uh, explicitly he's uh, suggested overturning Chevron. And you are, uh, your description was very good. And it is true that uh, Nino Scalia was uh, an ardent advocate in the early years uh, of uh, Chevron deference. And uh, this is, I, uh, I remember this well because I was kind of there at, at, at Regulation Magazine when the, yeah. uh, the, the decision was handed down. And the. The argument, um, which is by no means um, uh, easily dismissed, is that the uh, first, the agencies, although they have a very attenuated kind of democratic legitimacy because they are these faceless bureaucrats, nonetheless, the voters can in principle at some point get them out, uh, and they can't get the judges out if the judges are wrong. So, so you start with the dem democratic uh, element. Uh, you add in expertise, the fact that uh, an agency uh, spends all of its time around its statutes and has had a chance to uh, get to understand much better how they work, whereas a judge uh, may be uh, encountering a statute for the first time and doesn't really have a very clear idea of uh, uh, what's happening. And you uh, go on to uh, further arguments for it, such as uh, uh, the need to have one clear rule. An agency can provide one clear rule. You know, it says uh, we interpret this ambiguous term as meaning X, whereas you leave it to the courts and you may have one answer in the First Circuit, one answer in the Fourth Circuit, or yet, yet another answer in the Tenth Circuit. And it may take years and years before uh, you get a, 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 the kind of certainty that people would like if they are going to comply with it. So all of those are reasons worth weighing in the balance on Chevron. Uh, the problem is um, not only um, does power get um, uh, accumulated in the central government because it's a very, very uh, useful power to be able to uh, have your way on the ambiguous uh, terms in, in your statute if you're an agency. Your, your disputes are very often you versus some regulated party that you've dragged into court, and uh, this increases the chances that you will win. Um, not only that, but the courts wound up, um, as the, the doctrine developed, they said, well, if the agency changes its position, um, used to interpret the word one way, and then it found it more convenient to interpret a different way, uh, our Chevron deference will also track the new meaning. Even if people arrange their affairs in reliance on the old meaning, the agency gets to change the, uh, the goalposts, as it were, and sure, sure. Um, uh, ch change the meanings. But it gets even worse than that, because once everyone got used to the idea of Chevron deference, uh, it was noticed uh, first by cynics, who are usually first to notice things, uh, and then by everyone else, that uh, 
agencies have a great deal of influence over how their future statutes get drafted. You know, new environmental uh, law that's being drawn up, someone's going to ask EPA, you know, could you please help us with exactly uh, how these laws should read? Well, so the agencies um, influence the statute writers to put more ambiguity in, um, to make the law less clear to those who have to uh, obey it, uh, and give the agency lots and lots of play in the joints with lots of ambiguity, because that serves its interest in being able to jail whoever they want to, uh, you know, confiscate property from whoever they want to. And it's at that point that uh, conservatives and, and some liberals, too, began standing up saying, uh, wait a minute, this uh, started out as uh, – uh, you know, trust that agencies would do the right thing, and it's turning into a racket. Uh, you know, they are um, not only exploiting the uh, unintended ambiguities that uh, are there because of, of oversights, they are uh, manipulating this in order to um, uh, win against the citizen, uh, you know, uh, in all sorts of situations where uh, um, we would have wanted the law to be drafted clearly, and now we're not even getting that. So, the, so for all these reasons, uh, with a lot of help from libertarian legal thinkers, um, the um, um, wave has been building. Let's re-examine Chevron. Uh, let's re-examine a couple of uh, closely related doctrines like uh, our and Seminole Rock, which is uh, what if the agency's own regulations are ambiguous? Do they get the benefit of the doubt on that too? Uh, or do they get the uh, uh, deference to their interpretation? Well, at this point, it's getting crazy because uh, they're responsible themselves for writing their uh, regulations. And if they um, uh, get deference for it, it's even easier for them to put ambiguity into those than to persuade someone in Congress to, to uh, write something ambiguously. So, so our and Seminole Rock are even riper for being overturned. Um, because um, just as uh, the contract that a uh, bank or insurance company draws up and, and asks you to sign is often construed strictly against <laughs> them, because after all, you know, they, they, they drew it up. They, if any ambiguity uh, shouldn't be used to penalize you further, it, you know, it's kind of the feeling about agency regulations. Look, you've got your shot at controlling the populace, but uh, uh, you know, we, we're we're then going to interpret things that you didn't make clear on, in. Uh, you know, for the freedom of the population, that that would be the, I think, the more appropriate, um, uh, you know, way, way to do it instead of our and Seminole Rock. So, anyway, this this has been building and building among uh, the um, uh, thinkers, but Gorsuch um, went well out on a limb in saying, "Look, it's time to do uh, something here. Uh, we've been all more and more uneasy about this." Uh, uh, the critique is now very clear. Uh, let's not let this go on forever. And as an appeals court judge, that was as far as he could go. Uh, sure. He has to follow the marching orders. He can't actually propose overturning it. But he, in all but, uh, you know, in all but fact, he he did propose overturning it. Right. And even in this current Congress, they passed a bill. Um, on January 11th called the Regulatory Accountability Act of 2017, which if made into law, the President Trump would sign it. Um, it would change the doctrine of the Chevron defense. So uh, let, me, let, me, let me wrap this, uh, this segment up on Gorsuch, uh, Walter. Two, two final questions, and it's a, it's a two-part question. One is, is 
we as a minor detail is we are um we are libertarian centric so we um we are we definitely are of the libertarian philosophy to government uh does is Neil Gorsuch's nomination to the Supreme Court, does that give libertarians um, hope that we will have a textualist um, and an originalist on the, the Constitution? And two, will, Demo- will any Democrats, do you imagine, will cross over and vote for his nomination? Well, let me answer the first question uh, first, which is it, it is clear that Neil Gorsuch is not a libertarian as such and doesn't think of himself that way. That having been said, uh, um, I think that textualism and um, uh, the uh, originalist approach that Gorsuch brings um, should be seen by libertarians as a very good deal. Obviously, the Constitution is not uh, libertarian in every single respect, and the Constitution is not read by originalists to do everything the libertarians might want a Constitution to do in principle. But compared with the other products on the market, <laughs> the, uh, the thing about uh, most of the living Constitution variations uh, is that um, uh, you know, perhaps if you could uh, – uh, permanently assure that all judges had libertarian instincts, uh, you might remove the the discipline and the control of originalism and say, uh, yeah, go with the spirit of what you believe a living constitution would have changed into by now. And you might get better results uh, on a number of issues, uh, maybe for quite a while, but the uh, without the anchor, who knows where the, the ship will wind up belong to. <laughs> and uh, that's that's why I think the prudent libertarian view is um, the Constitution um, has been an unrivaled charter for uh, success uh, for individual liberties and for, uh, despite all of the, th- the ways in which the government has grown too large, um, it has still prevented uh, certain ultimate types of overthrow and that the, um, uh, the best judicial approach is to hold the government of the Constitution and if the Constitution needs amending, then work to amend it. Um, now, on the second question of will he get some Democratic votes, you know, it's so hard for me to see. I um, uh, I notice in the cabinet picks that um, uh, there was um, a long series of votes in which uh, either every Democrat or, or only all but one or two uh, voted against Republican nominees who didn't really seem all that um, different from Republican nominees who have gotten, uh, you know, wide approval at other times. But the and sometimes they seem better qualified than some of the ones who did get some Democratic votes. But so the so I'm not, you know, I'm not a Democratic senator, and I can't speak for their their strategy. <laughs> Thought strategy um, at some point will result in, uh, I think, a leadership calculation. Uh, is it more helpful to look reasonable, you know, release 15 of our people um, who are, are uh, under constituent pressure? You know, the lawyers in their states are saying, oh, come on, God, you're not going to vote against Gorsuch. Uh, you know, the ones who are in um, swing or, or red states, uh, you know, re- release them in order to make their um, uh, records more appealing to moderate voters. Uh, or do we... Um, uh, make the symbolic point. Um, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we we are the opposition to Trump. Uh, you know, we will op- oppose him on uh, something as important as this, uh, without really 
um, you know, with, with with party discipline and, and without uh, spending too much time on the differences between Gorsuch and some other nominee. I do predict uh, that I do predict uh, Walter in one final point that I, I think uh, some a senator like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a moderate leaning Democratic senator, may ultimately come over and support Judge Gorsuch and uh, maybe a few other. Um, moderate leading senators. So I, I do predict that a vast majority, including uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, he will vote against Gorsuch as a political statement um, you know, in direct opposition to Donald Trump, the person and the president. Um, so I think the final vote total will be t- between somewhere between 50, 54, 55 to you know, 40, whatever the, the total is that they have. So that's that is my uh, prediction. So, Eric, it's on to you. Yeah. Well, let's let's do a, a like a, a March Madness bracket for how many votes he's going to get. Uh, we'll have to we'll put something up later. Um, <laughs> I'm going with 62. Um, yeah. So, um, Walter, I want I wanted to bring us back a little bit to uh, Maryland. Um, you had mentioned this actually earlier when you were talking about Neil Gorsuch. Um, there is a I guess depending on how you market it, there's either a death with dignity or a doctor assisted suicide. Um, issue. I mean, this has come up a couple times in Maryland. Um, I believe it last year. It's an issue this year. Um, could you uh, um, kind of, uh, to be honest with you, I don't really, uh, I mean, I, I hear a lot of, of noise about the issue. Um, so could you, could you just break it down? What, what is, skip past the rhetoric, what's actually going on here? What's the bill? And why should somebody be opposed to or support it? Okay. I am, not an expert on the details, but I do know something about it. Um, doctor-assisted suicide in various forms um, uh, has made some inroads in Western states. Um, it has been kicking around the legislature now for uh, two or three terms. Um, here in Frederick County, um, uh, Senator Ron Young had uh, been a sponsor. and I believe he dropped his sponsorship without actually opposing it because um, it was considered something of a political hot potato. Um, it draws very, very, very strong opposition from the Catholic Church. Um, uh, Governor Hogan um, had um, uh, declared that he was firmly opposed. Uh, there, I've seen some speculation that uh, he might not uh, go to the mat against it. But um, it's not clear in Maryland, given the uh, uh, various possible sources of opposition. Um, I'm not sure that they uh, will find it that easy to get a majority of votes for it. And I say that uh, in part because the um, uh, between the strength of the Catholic Church, the uh, importance of minority representation, and that has not been, um, uh, I think, a particular source of fuel for it. The um, Doctor-assisted suicide is associated with, particularly with the state of Oregon. Now, Oregon is interesting in a couple of ways. Oregon is, along with Washington State, it's the least religious state in the country by some measures, uh, and it's also one of the least minority states in in the country. Um, my sense is politically that uh, uh, that those are partial explanations for why. Um, there was more willingness to move forward, uh, it, you know, into areas that various European countries, like the Netherlands, uh, have ex- experimented for. As a policy matter, um, I urge everyone to be very, very cautious on this. Uh, you know, from a libertarian standpoint, 
um, uh, it is easy to see uh, in individual rights theory why libertarians are more in favor of um, first legalization of suicide, which is kind of a prior issue, uh, even before you get doctors involved. Uh, the tradition of um, most uh, legal systems is to criminalize suicide, which always was kind of a stumper when we would t discuss libertarian theory. You know, are they supposed to catch you if you were successful? I mean, what what, what do they do? Yeah. What do they yeah. do to punish you if if you actually How, succeeded at this? So it's presumably unsuccessful suicide attempts. I'm sorry. I said, how can you punish a dead person? Like, that just seems like... Well, uh, yeah, so, so, so we would quickly realize, okay, they, they must have been punishing the unsuccessful attempts. It, it must be an attempt that sure. uh, was uh, uh, pu pu punished. And, you know, that's, that, that makes an interesting question uh, much easier uh, for libertarians um, to um, achieve unanimity on than the um, uh, question of whether... Uh, other people, whether doctors or perhaps family members, um, should be um, uh, empowered. And the, the reason is that you very quickly get into um, uh, several categories um, of um, uh, disability in which it's not um, clear that the person is of sound mind. It, it, uh, the person may be under pressure. The person may be um, uh, under um uh, m uh, the uh, undue coercion. In, but yeah, it's, the, 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 the same things yeah. that you know. If, if you spend much time around wills and estates, um, you know, you see all of these undue influence cases in which um, the person uh, is made to, uh, you know, marry um, Anna Nicole Smith uh, and uh, you know hand over all of his, uh, his money to Anna Nicole Smith, uh, who's you know got these really. Cur curvy curves instead of, uh, you know, his children <laughs> by a previous marriage. And, um, and you think, all right, um, can I say that a rational person would not have chosen to leave all of his money to Anna Nicole Smith, uh, who was making goo-goo eyes at him rather than his, his grown children by an earlier marriage? I, I don't know. That part, you know, he's probably not insane. You know, so, yeah, she gets it. Uh, um, but the, um, if the next question is um, uh, the... Um, uh, it, does the undue influence extend to, oh, well, he signed this. Uh, uh, you know, she got the money a couple of years earlier than uh, she was expecting to because of the assisted suicide. You know, his, his disease wasn't expected to kill him for a couple of years, but here's his signature. Uh, you know what? So, so right there, um, the lawyer, as opposed to the libertarian, uh, will pop up and say, gee, that signature had better be a pretty good signature. Who should we have come around to witness that other than Anna Nicole Smith herself? And I don't mean to demean her. I, I don't think she probably would, would have gone that far. But, but you know, some family members um, will have a mix of motives, uh, and the mix of motives will include some ones that will seem pretty good. You know, they won't want their loved one to suffer. They won't want their loved one to, um, uh, you know, be going through things that, that a, a, a slow death uh, involve. At the same time, uh, they will have some motives that are um, perhaps less easy to identify with. Uh, you know, the, uh, it will have taken up all of their own time as caregivers. Uh, uh, you know, even if there is no estate, uh, there, uh, this is just one of the most difficult things that most people go through is to be a caregiver. And, um, you know, 
to what extent are they influencing their loved one? Um, very, very hard question. And, uh, and that's before you even bring the doctors into it. And um, so I'm, uh, you know, I, I have the same instincts as most libertarians. Uh, I project myself into the, uh, the chair or the, the bed of the um, painfully dying patient. And I think there must be a better way than the one that has been prescribed of uh, you just have to stand it for, uh, you know, uh, uh, indefinitely. Um, but, the, um, uh, but I do see where uh, you want uh, very strong safeguards. Uh, and then when you add doctors in, uh, you get a bunch of additional professional uh, difficulties you get, you know, we think of doctors as being good, but in fact, there's a very substantial, um, uh, unfortunately, minority of the medical profession that will um, not be well restrained by ethics. We we know that from the, um, uh, you know, doctor feel good pill prescribers. We know that from the uh, people who uh, collaborate with um, uh, bad things the government does where they need doctors. And um, and you may have people who want to keep the surviving relatives happy more than they care about loyalty to the dying patient. So um, that's um, uh, that leads to rejection by some doctors based on not just the Hippocratic Oath, but their own feeling that uh, the, uh, they're not sure the profession can be trusted with the uh, a, a mix of incentives and powers quite as as strong as that. So, so that, that's kind of the negative case. I'm not saying I'm convinced by the negative case, but I'm putting it out there because anyone arguing from a pro-death um, with dignity standpoint needs to be prepared to answer those arguments. It, it sounds to me, well, Walter, like uh, this is a the, – the intention is very clear, okay? Nobody wants to sit around while a loved one suffers, especially in a terminal case, but it's the, the mechanisms of how do you – seems like the mechanisms are the problem, not necessarily the intention. Yeah, it's um, uh, if I had a uh, great five-point plan to answer it, uh, I would now be reeling it off. Uh, as it is, I, <laughs> I'm more certain of some of the questions to ask than I am of, of what the right answers are, although I um, – you know, my own bias is that I want to be having this debate rather than uh, putting the whole subject back in the drawer because I think that we can do better in some way than the traditional understanding. My my heart breaks, um, and I've been seeing these cases my whole life long, uh, uh, where the loved one, whether husband or wife, uh, uh, you know, brings the pills um, uh, for the overdose. Uh, and in many of these cases, it's very, very, very clear that the this was uh, an ideal marriage, that they loved each other, that there was no bad motive whatsoever. And uh, the old legal practice sometimes included prosecuting and imprisoning uh, the uh, bereaved widow or widower, um, you know, not just in the cases where there was something uh, that smelled bad about inheritances, but in the cases where clearly there was nothing that smelled bad uh, just because the law had to be upheld. Well, you know, I think that's one of the most heartbreaking things that the law can possibly do, and I look for a better way. I'm not sure what that better way is. Um, so moving on, uh, Walter, uh, let's see. Let's talk about redistricting. Um, that's your bread and butter. Um, 
Governor Hogan has appointed you to um, to lead a redistricting committee. So how's that going, and where is it going to take us? Well, thank you for asking, because there uh, is a new legislative session, and there is, is also some interesting news about the topic and about our commission. I will start with the news about our commission, which is not really all that electrifying, but in January, um, our commission was due to expire after its year and a half life, and uh, at the um, uh, enthusiastic request of many of the uh, members of the commission who have been working on it, um, uh, Governor Hogan extended its work for another year, recognizing that um, the issue hadn't gone away, that um, the um, types of research and uh, public discussion hearings, uh, for example, that uh, the commission had uh, continued to have a role as the um, public debate set. And, and I mentioned hearings uh, in our earlier round before we came out with the recommendation, uh, which I urge everyone to go to the governor's website and download the um, report because it, it really is, if I say so myself, uh, you know, clear and understandable, you know, goes to the issues uh, very nicely about why um, other states manage to do a better job on avoiding gerrymandering, uh, what sorts of principles help to avoid gerrymandering, and what sorts of uh, institutions and practices. But um, we had five public hearings. Um, and w when you only have five public hearings, you can't really get them into every part of the state. We had the Eastern Shore, we had Hagerstown, and then we only had three hearings um, to um, put them uh, in, in the rest of the state. So there wasn't one, for example, in Montgomery County. Uh, there also wasn't one in the city of Baltimore, although we had one right almost at the border. But, but Montgomery County um, you know, is a... Um, uh, big obvious omission and uh, I think there is um, unanimous feeling that uh, when we, it probably won't be until after the session is over because everyone that would be staffing it is too busy during the session, but but that afterward uh, we'll have a hearing in, in Rockville or, or Gaithersburg or someplace uh, uh, to give Montgomery County people a chance to um, uh, come out in, in numbers and uh, we know that that is, uh, you know, probably the strongest single area for um, enthusiasm for reforming the redistricting area because uh, you have so many people who care about good government in Montgomery County. And, um, you know, the memories of, of Connie Morella getting <laughs> redistricted out of her seat are, yeah. are still surprisingly fresh, even though it was years ago. But um, so that's our commission. We, we, will, we are in business for another year and we'll be doing some stuff around here. Um, but beyond that, uh, a couple of very interesting news developments. Uh, uh, your readers may already know about them, but let me briefly rehash them. Uh, first, you have um, the um, developments in the lawsuit uh, by Judicial Watch, which had been ticking along challenging the um, sixth district. Uh, originally, they challenged all the districts, and then the, the case got pared down to uh, challenging the 6th District, and within the past couple of weeks, uh, the federal court ruled that um, this was a serious enough case that they were entitled to get um, uh, discovery, as lawyers call it, and they were entitled to uh, place under oath for depositions uh, Mr. Miller and Mr. Bush, as well as a couple of other, um, I think, uh, 
uh, Rich Madaleno, uh, the senator from Montgomery County, and and one other official. Uh, and they were also entitled to get document discovery. They were entitled to have handed over to them a lot of papers for, uh, from the period when the um, uh, earlier plan was being drawn up and going through. And this is significant in at least two ways. First, uh, the fact that the judge allowed this indicates, as had, was already becoming clear from other rulings in the case, that um, this is being taken seriously, that it's not um, uh, sort of an easy win for the um, uh, opponents of, of, of the lawsuit, uh, as had been uh, you know, rashly assumed for a while. Um, and that, in turn, um, relates to the fact that there is movement um, if not an avalanche-like movement, there's a lot of movement in the courts toward um, uh, possibly cracking down on gerrymandering. The Supreme Court, by five to four vote some years ago, refused to do so because they said that they couldn't find any principled way to apply uh, formulas that would not drag the courts into uh, endless political second-guessing. But since then, there was just a case in, in Washington State where um, uh, a gerrymander was struck down on, on First Amendment grounds, which is the same theory that is alive in the Maryland one. So anyway, um, <clears throat> you've got that case going forward. Uh, and the second thing about the discovery is that uh, you might learn something. You, uh, the things you might learn might be kind of newsworthy, uh, uh, depending on what they say in uh, when they are questioned under oath. Uh, that might produce news, depending on what's in the documents they have to hand over to the lawyers. That might also produce news. So that uh, we will all be tuned for uh, possible news developments from that. The second thing is uh, former Governor Martin O'Malley, and uh, he had um, a uh, very public moment of repentance a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think it was at Boston College. He was speaking. And as I guess he gets asked fairly often, uh, they said, well, uh, you know, you've said all these idealistic things about good government. Didn't you do the gerrymander, this uh, ridiculous gerrymander, this nationally famous, internationally famous, awful gerrymander? And uh, it was interesting as I was speaking to a student who'd heard uh, O'Malley speak a couple of months ago, um, I think after the election, but um, uh, even so, uh, not not as recently, who said that uh, O'Malley was asked the same question at a different college appearance and just sort of didn't have a good answer. He just sort of went back and forth and didn't want to defend the thing, didn't want to criticize it, but didn't, didn't, um, didn't seem to know what to say. And um, by the time he got to Boston College, or if I'm remembering right, uh, a couple weeks ago, he did know that he wanted to say something different than he, he formally said. And he said, I was wrong. Um, you know, I got talked into this, but it was a bad thing to do, and I regret having done it. And that was something he never said uh, while running for president. So what I uh, – what came to mind uh, when I saw this is that the church doors are always open to the penitent. Um, you know, it is – there is much rejoicing when uh, a great sinner – uh, has uh, <laughs> realizes that it's, you know that he should be walking the paths of righteousness. However, uh, although the doors of the church are open, you might have to get used to the idea of listening to sermons that are about you for the next couple of weeks, um, because he, um, uh, you know, he has to sit in the back pew, so to speak. It, it is great, and it's a, it, it's a wonderful sign that, uh, as we knew all along, this is a 
bipartisan cause. It's not just Republicans in Maryland. Uh, it's lots and lots of Democrats, too, uh, that want to change this. Um, Walter, um, we appreciate all of your insight. You, We love you coming on to the show, uh, and we love to have you more often. You're, you're absolutely brilliant. You're thorough, and you're very informative. And this audience, um, I, I think in... Uh, in this environment of um, politics as we know today, these discussions are important because tonight we get to talk about policy and important issues that will have direct effect over our lives. Um, Walter, do you have a personal website where we can find you and where we can read some of your material? Um my main website is called overlawyered.com. Now, you will find that that is the legal issues, uh, the national issues, the funny stories about litigation from around the country. I have a uh, much less well-known site called Free State Notes on um, WordPress, which um, uh, is just about Maryland policy. And I don't update it as often, you know, maybe a couple times a month. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I do urge people to check that out, Free State Notes, or else check on my name uh, with um, Maryland or some other keyword. And you will find, um, you know, a, a selection of the topics we've been talking about on on Maryland, um, a little bit more depth on redistricting. Um, and I know that folks, if 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 you're listening and uh, you are also part of the uh, the Crooked Media, you can contact Walter Olson um, uh, on his, on the Cato website. And if you go to Cato.org. Uh, you can find Walter's biography there, and uh, you can also follow him on Twitter. Walter, are there any upcoming Cato events um, that would be noteworthy that we should consider attending? I mentioned the one on the Supreme Court. There are um, – there's a lot of different ones, and I, I don't have the Cato website uh, directly in front of me, but I, I will say that the – there is probably not a single uh, policy division in Cato that is not trying to evaluate uh, what to make of the Trump administration. Um, and sometimes, as with – well, um, you know, I I went to one of our um, defense and foreign policy uh, uh, pr- presentations a couple of weeks ago. Not my usual area, but uh, that is certainly one where – uh, some of what Trump said on the campaign trail about uh, looking after America's interests rather than being the you know, forward policeman of the world and so forth, some of that resonated with um, uh, what Cato scholars have, have uh, written for a long time. Um, the problem, as someone has said, is uh, uh, a combination of uh, lack of experience and feel for the subject, uh, but also a temperament, because uh, wars do not arise uh, uh, simply because of policy. They also arise because of uh, personality and miscalculation. And um, easy to anger is not a good profile. Uh, I hope that the president is not privately easy to anger because that would be um, one of, um, you know, the, the, e- e- even if his policy is uh, more peace-oriented in general, um, it would be a, a possible tripwire for something going wrong in foreign policy. So there's all of that. Um, Cato is um, 
more consistently enthusiastic about a lot of what's going on with regulation and um, mm-hmm. the the need to roll back some of the ridiculous stuff from the uh, the Dodd Frank and and in my view also the Sarbanes Oxley uh, laws. These have been uh, straitjackets. The you know you can argue about parts of them that. Um, uh, need to be covered by some sort of uh, different policy than was in before, but um, there's a lot of overkill. There's a lot of completely uh, random regulation that was shoveled in just because someone it was someone's pet project, and uh, it would be a um, a great big positive signal to uh, for investment to say, look, we are um, at least going to look for the easy kills. We're going to look for the stuff that is uh, doing no good and and imposing large. Uh, compliance costs. So um, look for events on all of those subjects at Cato. I, I, to wrap it up, I attended a December 8th uh, Cato event uh, entitled Free Speech in the Age of Trump, and they had uh, the world-class and world-famous journalist Fleming Rose, as well as Reason Magazine's Nick Gillespie. And uh, the panel uh, discussed um, basically, the concept, the this emerging emerging concept of so-called fake news and some of the controversies and what to expect in a Trump presidency after Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had called for closing down parts of the internet as an anti-ISIS measure, um, and just basically where what we can do as activists to basically continue to uphold the a free press. Um, it was a well-attended event, and um, I, I had an opportunity to meet the uh, very interesting Nick Gillespie and have a brief conversation, um, and uh, he writes um, some great articles over at Reason Magazine. So, I And then, Walter, I should also tell you that I listen daily to uh, Cato's podcast, which is um, – they do a, a, a Cato Daily podcast – on the app that you can download for free on iTunes. I definitely. Um, I love the Cato podcast, too, and it um, uh, is extremely popular. I've, I run into a lot of people who know me uh, as a Cato podcast commentator who never realized that I did anything else uh, besides that. But the um, free speech is uh, a perennial and intense interest at, at Cato to the point where, believe it or not, we've actually had two different events on uh, Trump, uh, the, the era of Trump and, and free speech. We had a second one following the one that you mentioned uh, with uh, Frank Buckley, who is a professor who is defending the Trump point of view, uh, uh, Robert Corn Revere, leading First Amendment lawyer. Um, the um, I, Because I write about litigation, I'm very uh, uh, keenly aware of the uh, uh, use of litigation to intimidate the press, through uh, sometimes through um, defamation actions, sometimes through other means. And Trump's rhetoric has been very objectionable on that. Now, uh, the silver lining, if there is one, is that the president really can't do much of anything about that. Sort of, you know, he can kind of set a bad tone, but, but he can't actually do too much beyond setting a bad tone. At the same time, you've got um, uh, a, a range of other issues uh, from campaign speech to whether or not we will stick up in international uh, forums uh, against the spread of things like uh, laws against hate speech and, and, and so forth. There, um, you know, it's possible that he will do a better job on some of those issues than a Hillary Clinton administration would have done. Um, so they're both very mixed bags. They're both, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, both the Democrats and Republicans these days on free speech have to be evaluated issue by issue. There are, there are not, um, uh, as, as parties, they are not either of them consistent supporters. Oh, definitely. Definitely agree, Walter. So, um, Hey, Walter, thanks very much for calling in. Uh, we gotta, I, I gotta go say goodnight to the missus and everything. And I'm sure that, uh, that, Ryan, Ryan needs to hop, hop off here shortly. Um, okay. so, <laughs> thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you, Walter. Thanks, Walter. We appreciate your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes. Eric, um, Ryan, Wal- Walter's great because he's the most thorough and well-thought-out like commentator when it comes to these issues that you can imagine. I, 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 I have so much unlimited respect for him and I read his writings and I read his blog over lawyered and um, when I first had the opportunity to meet Walter um, we uh, instantly connected in that we we shared um, a common passion for um, some some of the key libertarian issues and Walter I I hope he does come back again soon because he lays out the the issues but explains it so much better than we can. Um, yeah, I t- and, and I tell you what, I, I I don't know if Walter wrote this or not, but Cato wrote this because um, we were talking about free speech. Um, there's a, a free speech case, I believe, out of Washington concerning a like like a punk rock band called the Slant Eyes, and they're all yeah. Asian. And Cato Institute oh, yeah. wrote this amazing, um, I believe it's an amicus curiae brief, the uh, Friends of the Court, and essentially it was right. citing all of the instances where similar terminology was used in band names that was a later copyrighted, such as the NWA, which everybody knows what that stands for. And nobody blinked about that, but apparently there, you know, some people are up in arms about the slant eyes. Um, so I, and I remember seeing Walter shared that, but that's the sort of like thinking that you can get, that you get from Cato and the people who work there. You know, it's spot I, on. I, re- I remember that, that, uh, that case, and I'm so happy that you brought that up because it was definitely one of those sort of landmark compelling um, Facebook discussion items that could uh, that could take on a thread of like thousands of comments. No, that was that's a very interesting case, Eric. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to talk a little bit more about uh, Walter's take on the first month of the Trump presidency or the Ninth Circuit's three to O decision against Trump. But nonetheless, we had an opportunity to discuss. Um, the Gorsuch nomination, which what I really wanted to talk about, um, and then the, of course his um, his his portion of the redistricting panel that Governor Hogan appointed him to. But with that, Eric, um, till next week, we'll we have lots of things to talk about, and maybe next week we'll do some local politics. I know that there's some unique stuff going on in your neck of the woods, and oh gosh, speaking of cases. Um, you know, Karen Harshman looks like she is set for removal um, in Washington County. Yes, yes look, I, so, I, I actually have to work on Wednesday, Ryan, so I'm not going to do Thor at four. So uh, we'll just move all the local stuff over to Sunday. I, I, I say we do that, and then you can take the lead. Um, but as always, um, for those who have joined us tonight, we appreciate your listenership. This will be turned into a podcast. And Eric, we are not fake news. <laughs> no, no. Every once in a while, we write satire. You know, hashtag yes, not my did. Super Bowl, but uh, you know but that's that was funny. that's the exception. <laughs> it, it All was, right, it was great. <laughs>
Well, we're going we're gonna to take this out. There's so much more to talk about this year, lots of politics, uh, an upcoming election. 2017 is the off year where everybody decides again to run for office because we have this endless political cycle of people and candidates, and Eric and I will have you covered. So, Eric, you can take us out. Remember, everybody, taxation is theft. Taxation is theft hashtag. Good night and have a productive week. Thank you.